Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rose, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey guys, it's Kayla. Candace isn't able to join us today, but we are all still so directionally challenged. We thought we'd have it all figured out by the time we were in our 30s, but surprise, we don't. And that is okay. Well, today I've got a few words for you. Let's see if you can guess what our episode's about. Um, treasure maps, chests of gold, jewels, parrots, making your enemies walk the plank. <laughs> yep, that's right, you guys. Today our episode is about pirates. You heard me, pirates. And I have to ask you something. When I just said pirates, what images came to mind? It's probably something similar to Captain Hook from Peter Pan or something of the like. But my point being, most images that we consider when we think of pirates are, I don't know, white and male. And it's funny, I was at Disneyland the other day with my little girl, and I really wanted to take her on the Pirates of the Caribbean ride. It's been one of my favorites since I was little. It was closed, and I was so disappointed. I just wanted to show Poppy this iconic ride from my childhood that I've always loved so many times. But then I got to thinking, 
well, wait a minute, as I'm researching for this episode, what is that telling her? Because, I mean, all the women are in dresses with big feather hats and they're buxom and they're running from these pirates. And I don't, that's not something I want to teach her. That's not some, a signal that I want to show my daughter. Well, that's where today's guest comes in. Today, we're going to sit and talk to Lee Lewis. She's the author of Pirate Queens, Dauntless Women Who Dared to Rule the High Seas. Her book proves that women have been making their mark in all aspects of history, even on the high seas. Legends and movies give us the impression that pirates were mainly male, but Lee, along with several other historians, are writing this wrong. She's written so many books for kids, along with political and adult humor, and she's also on the board of Society for Children's Books of Writers and Illustrators. She is passionate about helping other writers succeed. So turns out, guys, women aren't just feathered hat wearing eye candy, but they are brave legends who are also terrifying, and they ruled the high seas. So without further ado, here is my fascinating conversation with Lee Lewis. And we are here with Lee Lewis. You guys, I'm so excited that she's here. I'm so excited you're here, Lee. This conversation is one that I wanted, I've been wanting to have for a long time. I saw your book, Pirate Queens, Dauntless Women Who Dared to Rule the High Seas. And I knew I had to have you on. This is such a fascinating conversation because it's a book about the forgotten bad guys of the biggest magnitude, specifically about six forgotten female bad guys who ruled the high seas, yet they didn't make it into our history books. And we cannot wait for you to take us through some of these incredible women and their terrifying stories. But first, you know, this is a topic that isn't written about or discussed often at all. So I have to ask, I want to start with asking you, what piqued your interest in writing something of this nature? Can you share a little bit with us about the research process? I know that you were swimming, your kids were swimming. They were playing the walk the plank, right? Which yes, they were just walking. That's right. <laughs> the diving board, and you asked them to name the pirates that they knew. And it was a very short, very white, very male list, correct? That's right. You've got it. You nailed it. <laughs> and listen, thank you so much for having me. I am thrilled to be here. And I could talk about female pirates all day long. You also have nailed the part about wanting to talk about bad guys, because now I'm hooked and all I want to do is uncover other female bad guys in history. It's, you know, here I am pitching can we do serial killers next to my to my age? I think middle graders would love to hear about that. So my my editor is probably not quite as impressed. But anyway, I'm really thrilled that we're that we're having this conversation. So yes, before that walking the plank incident, I actually read about a female pirate named Ching Shi, whom I had never heard of, and who was the most powerful pirate who ever lived. And I read about her on a website called Women You Should Know, which is a website you should definitely check out. It's this incredible site that just features little known women in history and modern day women. And so I read about Ching Shi and she, so just to put it in perspective, Blackbeard ruled about 400 people. Mm -hmm. Guess how many Ching Shi ruled? No idea. 80,000. So Blackbeard <laughs> at his peak was at 400 people in his command. And Ching Shi at her peak was at 80,000 people. So that was three times larger than the Imperial Navy at that point in time. Just this massive, massive crew called the Red Flag Fleet. And so I read about Ching Shi. And over the next couple of months, I, you know, I would think about her every once in a while. I'm a writer. And so, you know, I think, think oh, is that, is there a story there? And 
I tried a little bit and didn't didn't really come up with anything um, that I thought was interesting or worth reading for kids. And and one day that happened at the pool. I was with my three kids and they were yelling in pirate speak to each other about flipping off the diving board and that kind of thing, walking the plank. And when they got done, I asked them who they knew as far as pirates go. And they could name two. They could name Blackbeard and they could name Barbarossa. And the only reason they could name Barbarossa is because my husband's Turkish and his elementary school was named after Barbarossa. And so they had heard that story from him before. And so I thought, yeah, I, I, should, I really should write about Qingxi. And that night I was lying in bed and I thought, Qingxi, the pirate queen, was ruler of the seas. She brought enemies, emperors, and dynasties to their knees. And I knew that I would write about her in poetry. And so I did. And I sent it to my agent and she loved it. And she said, this has got to be a book that National Geographic makes. And she sent it to them and we found the perfect editor. And my editor said, we love this, but we'd really love it even more if you could write about Qingxi and other female pirates. And I thought that was great. And so I said, sure, I would love to do that. Can I write each of their stories in a different verse form? And she thought that was a great idea. And Pirate Queens was born. I mean, there's so many things to unpack here. Xingxi is such a fascinating individual, and I'm so glad that you just happened upon that incredible website and happened to write this book. I mean, I just imagine you as this modern day pirate, you know, blazing a trail that's never been written, yeah. but a trail nonetheless. Oh, and I love that <laughs> while sitting at my desk and never leaving home. I love that idea. Right. <laughs> so you're, you're on this adventure, just like the females that you're intending to write about, but you found that the resources were few and far between, correct? I mean, talk to us about your research for in this experience and, and the lack of resources available. Sure. Well, you know, what was really interesting is what I found in modern resources. So there are some books that are written about female pirates, largely by women, but I was looking for kind of the collections of all pirates, kind of the best known history books in modern history by the the pirate experts of the world of today. And the women just aren't there in numbers. And so I found that really interesting. And so when I started to dive into Ching Shi first, and then later all of these other incredible women, I, I was fascinated to find that there really were some primary sources that existed for them. I mean, uh, and they range from things like, you know, Ching Shi had an English captive on her ship for three months, a British guy who wrote his his journals. And so we know exactly what took place on Ching Shi's ships and what her codes of conduct were and how she, you know, she put in place this feminist code. We know this from this this guy named Richard Glasspool, who wrote about Ching Shi. She put in place this feminist code for all 80,000 of her followers that said, instead of women being property, if we capture a woman, she is not to be treated as proper, property. There are two choices. We can either um, let her go or someone can marry her and become a monogamous couple with her. And that was it. And the the punishment for that was, for anybody disobeying that, was death. I mean, it was kind of unheard of at the time. And, and you know, we know about the fact that um, from him, we know about the fact that the reason that she was so successful was because she centralized everything. And so the, it, she put in, in, in 
place, this system where she would take kind of these ragtag pirates, you know, one ship, two ships, pirates, and give them a home. And anything that they captured, they put into a pool and then they got some back. But it was all a centralized system. So she made sure that they were well fed. She made sure that they got a piece of the larger pie, all of that. And, you know, in the end, we ended up finding out that Ching Shi negotiated a pardon for herself. And she was super savvy. I mean, when she was, the writing was on the wall, other countries were coming into place and saying, look, she's taken too much from us. It's time that we band against Ching Shi and the Red Flag Fleet. And so she decided to negotiate a pardon. And so she went in first with just a group of women and children, kind of like, Oh, who little old me? Just we're not—we don't mean any harm. And and tried to negotiate in in this very very non-threatening way, and they said no. And she left, and then came back about a month later and negotiated a pardon where she and her crew got to keep what they had, and they left without being penalized in any way. And in fact, many of her crew ended up being hired by the Chinese government to work for them on their behalf after that. Such a fascinating woman. And the fact that she's left out of our history books is mind boggling. I mean, it is. I don't know how she's not a household name. Honestly, I really don't. And I have asked so many people and I've been to so many classrooms and so many libraries and, and inevitably people say, wait, there are female pirates. And, you know, it's just, and I, I was right there with them before I learned about Ching Shi. I guess, you know, that's before this episode of Directionally Challenged. I was right there too, before coming across your book. Exactly. And I did, you know, after the fact, I was like, oh yeah. You know, in the back of my mind, I remembered Anne Bonnie. I remembered that name. And so, but aside from that, and I, you know, it was really just kind of a mystery to me. And when I started diving in to see what the primary sources were, I ended up finding Grace O'Malley as this Irish chieftainess who was kind of at battle with England for years and years. And at some point she had, you know, pillaged as much as she could from British ships and they were coming after her. Uh, Queen Elizabeth had set her sea dog on Grace O'Malley. And so we know that because we can see Sir Richard Bingham was his name. And it was this guy that was just relentlessly going after Grace O'Malley on behalf of Queen Elizabeth. And we have his records, his journals that talk about what their interactions were and what he was in pursuit of her, what he was doing and what she was doing and all of that. And in order to gain an audience with Queen Elizabeth, she had to fill out these, it's called the the Articles of Interrogatory, and it's 18 questions that she had to fill out in order to be granted an audience. And I was able to find those. I went to, I, you know, I searched and searched and searched, and finally I ended up doing what I always do and going to the library and begging the librarians to help me. And, you know, two days later, I got a ding, and it was an email that, with the original Articles of Interrogatory in Grace O'Malley's handwriting in my inbox. And so it was just incredible to find some of this old documentation that showed that these women not only existed, but how savvy they were. Well, and not only that, but you're sort of this modern day version of that, too. You're 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 saying, hey, all I need all my all the help I can get. Let's get all the librarians. Can you guys help me send me the good stuff? And you end up getting that, too. So that's that's incredible. I mean, you know, I know your book is mainly about six women. So can you take us through? You've talked about two. Can you take us through the other four and why you chose these six women. Yeah. And take us through some of your favorites and some of the great stories about Sure. Well, it was really important to me. Two things were important. One, I wanted to show a diverse representation. You know, 
pirates have existed in all corners of the world. And I wanted to make sure that I wasn't just showing the American pirates or the ones that were in the Bahamas or just from the golden age of piracy when Blackbeard existed and when Anne Bonny existed, because they go so much further back than that. And so I wanted to make sure that it was both a representative of a, of a broad time range and also the diversity from regionally. And so, you know, all the way going back to Artemisia of Caria, she was uh, the queen of a Greek city-state, and she was the first, allegedly, the first female naval commander. So the first, she's the first known female command, naval commander. She fought under the Persian king, Xerxes I, and she's well-known because she was in the Battle of Salamis. And what she did was she was the only female that he consulted about whether or not he should do this or do that. And she dared to buck the system and tell him that he should not go to battle in the Battle of Salamis. And he said, basically, I respect you and I'm not going to listen to you. And she said, okay. And she went out and took a fleet of six, six ships and went to fight in that battle. And he sat in a literal throne on the hill and watched over this battle being played out. And what he didn't realize was that Art Artemisia was actually being pursued. And she was trapped. She was going to get rammed and her ship would have been sunk. And so instead, she ended up raising a Greek flag and rammed one of, uh, sorry, a Persian flag and rammed one of Xerxes' ships and sunk it so that the ship behind her, a Greek ship, would think that she was an ally instead of his enemy. Enemy, And Xerxes didn't realize what had happened. And he continued to praise her and said, and actually said, my men have become women and my women men. And that was the largest compliment that he could have given at the time, at that point, right? And so, you know, that's really interesting. We know about this because Herodotus is wrote The Histories, which is a famous um, collection of, of events that happened during that point in time. And so he's wrote, written all about Artemisia of Caria. And so that's an exciting source that we know that exists that most historians have chosen not to pull out and put into modern collections about pirates. Okay, so let's talk about this for just a second, our sure. history books, because they seem to leave out so many stories that we need to hear and learn from. So, you know, I would just love to know your opinion on all of this, because as you're researching, there's got to be a level of excitement of getting all this amazing information on these incredibly terrifying but brave women. And then also this level of frustration because it isn't so readily available. And there's a lot of other information out there in our history books that you think, well, I could absolutely replace some of that in a heartbeat with all of this that I'm finding out. A hundred percent. Hey guys, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back in just a minute. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? 
Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and t-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. It's time to get more in 2024. I know for me, one of my goals is to feel really strong this year. And honestly, so far, so good. Because that's where 310 Nutrition comes in. It's helping me and our listeners in the new year with protein and super rich food products with so many options and flavors. Right now, I have the chocolate bliss and caramel sundae, and they are both so (laughs) delicious. I have to hide them from my husband so that he doesn't steal them too. They're a triplex protein blend, plant-based proteins that include pea, brown rice, and pumpkin that leave me feeling full. 310 Nutrition also has a hydrate electrolyte drink mix. My favorite is the peach mango flavor. So not only am I hydrating and drinking water, I have an electrolyte blend, vitamin blend, and it's sugar-free. With one stick of hydrate mix into 16 ounces of water, and it can provide the same amount of hydration equal to drinking two to three bottles of water. Thank you. This way I can keep my resolution, keep feeling strong, have greater focus, feel refreshed, and maintain my hydration without having to drink as much. One of my favorite refreshing water enhancers they have is the lemonade flavor. It gives me energy. This one's also sugar-free. It's used with real lemons and it's pH balanced. And this also offers the same hydration as two to three bottles of water. Right now, 310 is celebrating a new year of goals with code CHALLENGED and giving our listeners 50% off up to $100 for your first order. With so many sample packs, new products, it's really fun and easy to put together an order or start a subscription on products that you know you'll use and will help you keep your resolution. So go to 310nutrition.com and use the code CHALLENGED right now for 50% up to $100 for your first order. That's 310-nutrition.com and use code CHALLENGED. It's all the good stuff your body needs in flavors you crave. So be healthier effortlessly. back. You know, I listened to your podcast with Mina Harris, and I thought it was so important and so telling, talking about, it was great. And it was, you know, all about the male canon, the white male canon, and how that still exists, and how we, you know, when you look at history books, and that's any history books, 
it's as if women didn't even exist at that point in time, or people in color didn't, people of color didn't exist at that point in time. And so, you know, sometimes you think change can be forced through revolution or change can be forced by chipping away at status quo. So this isn't revolutionary, but it is chipping away at that. It's trying to make a mark in the books, especially that our kids are exposed to. I mean, even today. But I would say it is revolutionary, truly, because this doesn't really exist out there, and especially for children. Well, you know, it's interesting. I, I, I think children are so much more open than adults are. I think there few people would argue with that. It's been fascinating to see, even with my launch, how the book has launched. You know, it came out in January, and I'm always thrilled that anybody would bother to come to anything that I have anyway. You know, if, I, if I'm giving a presentation or anything like that, I'm so grateful that anyone would show up. But it has very, very largely been women and children in the audience. And and I think that's really telling. You know, that's the parents making those choices, that the dads aren't coming and they're, the, the parents aren't choosing to bring their sons. And And that certainly has not been the response that I've had from kids. When I go to school visits, you know, boys are just as likely as girls to be throwing their hands up in the air. And I, I always offer stickers at the end with, you know, the cover of the book on it and, and boys immediately take it off and put it onto their water bottle. And, you know, there's just a level of enthusiasm. They think it's really cool that there's female pirates and, and kids broadly, that's, that's the prevailing feeling that I get coming out of the kids is just excitement and surprise uh, about how cool it is that this existed. And, and, yeah, it is. It is. And, you know, I one of the things I kept thinking about when that I came across in research when I was listening to your podcast was that there's there's this historian, a British historian and professor named Dr. Bettany Hughes, and she's done a lot of research on gender dynamics and that type of thing. And so she talks about her estimates of written history, recorded history. So throughout history, women have, rep- have represented about 50% of the population right? Take a guess as to what percent of recorded history is occupied occupied by women and their, their actions. Uh, this is going to be so disheartening. I'm going to guess 20%. Right. Great guess. 0.5% is the answer. So less than 1%. And certainly that's gotten better over, Are you, you know, in serious? recent history. But 0.5%. I mean, it's, it's, it, it kind of makes you sick to your stomach to think about how much of history has been lost. And, and, and on the flip side of that, how much we've cele- celebrated people that probably didn't need to be celebrated. <laughs> I mean, you know, so it goes on both sides of that. And so, you know, it's, it is very, very exciting to read about these women's stories and to share them, uh, particularly with kids. I mean, it's thrilling to also have parents come up and have the conversations with me after too, but it's, it's really uh, been exciting. You know, and my part of the, with this is, especially for my kids and all kids like that, I, I, you know, when I all say to a classroom full of kids, when you picture a pirate, what do you see? You know, and they have a very, very, either a Hollywood version of that or, you know, Blackbeard, part of the way that he cultivated this image was that he put fuses in his hair and under his hat. So when he walked towards you, he smoked, literally smoke coming off of them. And so it was this very macho, masculine, scary image, right? And that that makes an impact, right? It's marketing. <laughs> it makes an impact. It totally and, is. <laughs> and so I guess part of it for me is I just am hopeful that after kids learn about these women, that there are some 
kids and maybe adults out there that when they picture a pirate, they picture a Chinese woman going forward. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, the irony does not escape us that part of the materials that you were able to access was a male's journal because he was held captive on the ship of a female pirate. And that's probably it's really disheartening to say, but that's probably why they were published because a male had written them. And that's just one tiny, minute example of like you said, the other, what, what is it? 99.9%? Yeah, that's, 99.5. That's right. Oh, thank you. 0.5. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I have to ask you, because given that Pirate Queens is written for kids, were there things that you had to leave out? There had to have been, right? And if so, you don't have to leave them out here. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, there were so many things that I had to leave out. And you know, it, it's funny that you asked that. That's one of the questions that I had never really thought of. I mean, in the moment I thought of it, of course, because I was frustrated. I wanted to put all of it in and I wanted to put all of the violence and the bloodthirstiness and the, you know, and there's some sexual stuff there. You're right, all the stuff that kind of makes it. But I hadn't really thought about it collectively until I w- was doing a New York tour and I, I we spoke to, my illustrator and I spoke to two different adult audiences. And in both of those, adults asked me that question. And so it's it's funny that you asked that also. So certainly there was a level of violence that I was not allowed to put in the book. Well, there's a story that you might like being pregnant of the original kind of super mom. And that was, uh, there's a story that I really wanted to put in the book because I thought, wow, what else could show the difference between what women can do than what men can do more than pregnancy? Right. And so there's a there's a story about Grace O'Malley that Grace O'Malley was pregnant. And instead of staying home in Ireland and kind of taking care of herself, she wanted to continue her life at sea. And so she was very, very pregnant and she gave birth below deck on her pirate ship. And at that point, she was attacked by Turkish pirates. And she came up and she she was down below and her crew called to her and asked her to come to come up and fight come help come help and so she ended up setting her baby down and coming up and taking up arms and warding off the turkish corsairs and and successfully warding them off and she was so livid that the crew had made her come up to to save the day that she yelled something at them like May your lives be seven times worse off one year from today that you could not do without me during this fight. <laughs> and, and, you know, I just love that idea that she was like, ah, oh, do I have to do everything myself? And then she went back down to tend her brand new newborn baby below deck. Okay, now I know what I'm going to be telling myself when I have to get up to feed at 3 a.m. I'm just going to have Grace O'Malley in my head thinking, well, at least I didn't just have to ward off a boat of pirates. At least I just got to sleep for a few hours. before. That's right. Wow. Oh, that's fascinating. I desperately wanted to write that as Grace O'Malley's most telling story. And it was very, very, very pared down, you know, under the idea that there were some kids that might be a little queasy by the pregnancy below deck and then coming up to take up arms. You know, my feeling is these are pirates. I mean, there's like you started with, they're bad guys, right? There's like, you know, a lot of times I'll say to kids, who here wants to be friends with a pirate? And everybody's like, oh, when they raise their hands, like, no, horrible idea. These were bad guys. I mean, they just are horrible people. But yeah, so there was that. And then, you know, uh, there were some things that we just couldn't put in because there are not 
there's not documentation to back it up. And so, for instance, one of the pirates that I touched on briefly, Anne Bonny, who is probably the best known female pirate to Americans, at least, Anne Bonny dressed like a man in order, as many of these women did, as many female pirates did, because women were considered bad luck on ships. And so in order to be allowed to go take up a life at sea, many of the women had to dress like men. There may have been other reasons. They may have chosen to dress like men. We don't know that. But they did in order to pass. And so Anne Bonny was on her ship and she was dressed like a man. And she was secretly with the captain, Captain Jack Rackham. And it turned out that there was a pirate on their ship named Mark Reed. And Jack Rackham got jealous of Mark Reed because Mark Reed and Anne Bonny started this friendship. Well, it turned out Mark Reed was Mary Reed. So it was a second woman on the ship that was dressed like a man. And it's alleged that the two of them had a relationship, Anne Bonny and Mary Reed. And I would have loved to explore that, but it, it again, is unsubstantiated. And so we just couldn't go down that path. Great story. That should be a movie. I know it should. That should absolutely be a movie. And absolutely you also, you write for adults as well. So now I'm inspiring you to write this story and this book because <laughs> right. that's incredible. That screenplay, yes, right? that screenplay. That's incredible. I, you know, it's funny you mentioned pirates by definition are bad because as I'm reading about these women and we're having this discussion, I have to be honest, the only words that come to mind are badass because they're so inspiring. But you are right. It's important to remember that these are people that were malicious and murdering others and just out for blood. And so that, you know, there's there's this idea that pirates are fantasized and, you know, we we all want to be a pirate and all of that. But then there is a level of gravity that we also need to maintain. That's right. But, but you, it, you know, it's an interesting point because the line, one of the things that came out for me during the writing of this was how thin the line is between piracy and royalty. And so it, it you know, or, or government. And so there were so many times, you know, a, a pirate who is hired, who is, who is given approval by the government is called a privateer and they're sanctioned and they're just considered a government worker and they're doing the exact same thing. They're just doing it on behalf of some government and then giving the money back to the government. And, and so, you know, who, who is there to determine what's good and what's bad? You know, a lot of these people, um, these women took to piracy for all different reasons, you know, like, Anne Bonny, she just was a badass and she was just bloodthirsty and she was angry and she was a violent kid. And, you know, she has, there's all these Anne Bonny stories about stabbing a servant because they wouldn't give them, give her a fork and, you know, all this stuff. She burned down her dad's plantation and all these things. Like she was just out for blood. Um, But then you look at, there's an Islamic pirate in the book named Saida Al-Hura. And when she was a kid, she lived in Granada and her family was exiled because they were Muslim. And so it was during the Reconquista and um, Isabella and Ferdinand were trying to take back the land to make it Christian land. So they kicked all of these families out. And uh, and Saida Alhara ended up going with her family when she was young to Morocco. And she, at some point in time, determined that she was going to make, in her own words, my Christian enemies pay. And the way that she decided to do that was that she approached the most feared pirate in the region at the point, which is Barbarossa, who I mentioned earlier. And she said, hey, we're both kind of after the same things. Why don't you let me take the Western Mediterranean and you 
stick to the Eastern Mediterranean. And he said, okay. And so for 20 years, she terrorized Spanish and Portuguese ships, but she did it on behalf of her people who had been ripped from their homes. And so, you know, it, it who she's considered an Islamic, a very powerful woman in Islamic history. And so that is definitely one of those different perspectives determine, your perspective determines how you see this person. Were they evil or were they just in seeking revenge and trying to take back some of the goods that were taken from them? Right. Oh, it's such a fascinating point. You know, there's so much to pack into each story, each pirate story. And I know you decided to write this in poetry format, which I feel like you made... Really, which feels like it would be very difficult to do because you have to pack it into just a poem, right? And it would be so much easier. So, how did you do that? Talk to us about your decision to write it in poetry format. And um, I just commend you because I feel like that makes it so much more difficult to do. Oh, thank you. I, you know, it was it was really it was so much fun to do it this way. And I, I had tried my hand at writing Ching Shi's story in prose and was just not successful. And so when that phrase came to me, to my mind, I thought, oh, that works for her. And then I had a couple of other types of verse forms that felt like such a good fit for the individual pirates. And so, you know, for instance, an epistle is a, 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 a poem written in a letter form. And I knew that because of those articles inter of interrogatory that I had spoken about, that Grace O'Malley had to write to Queen Elizabeth, that there was a letter that she wrote to her. And so I thought, oh, that would be really fun to write her story in, in that form, in epistolary form. And with Anne Bonny, I couldn't think of anyone who would follow the rules less than Anne Bonny. And so, you know, using free verse just made sense for her. And for Saeed Alhura, um, as I my my as I said, my husband's Turkish, and so there's um, when we we lived in Turkey for many years, and at some point uh, he said, you know, I don't know, I was explaining something to him, kind of trying to convince him or something, and he said, "Banagazel Okuma," which is in Turkish, you know, don't literally don't read gazelle to me, which is a gazelle. I I didn't know what it meant at the time, so I looked it up, and it's it's this verse form. A gazelle is a verse form, and it's this really complicated, beautiful verse form that was used mostly by uh, Persians in in creating love stories and and mostly songs. And so I started, you know, I read everything I could. This is 20 years ago. I read all of them that I could, that I could get my hands on and loved it so much. And so as soon as I knew there was an Islamic pirate, I knew that was the verse form that I wanted to write it in. So it was just kind of finding the right thing that I thought would bring their stories to life. And I absolutely loved that part of it. It felt like I hadn't really seen that in a, in a kid's book before, um, in this format that, you know, National Geographic allowed me to put so much back matter around it. So it would be fun for kids to find little tips and tricks about the, the pirates themselves. And then they found this incredible illustrator to bring it all to life. So that's, that's how it came to be. Hey guys, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back in just a minute. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. And we're back. You guys have had such a commitment for the historical accuracy of these illustrations. So can you talk to us a little bit about that and what went into that? And I'm I'm just so grateful as a mother that you took the time to do that, because not only is this book going to teach my daughter about the female pirates and female empowerment, it's also going to teach her about the different types of poetry she can write. And then the, the actual historical accuracy is correct as well. Well, thank you. I, I'll tell you a little bit about Sarah Gomez-Wooley, who's the illustrator and her commitment to it. It was just incredible. And National Geographic's. So National Geographic actually hired individual experts on each of these pirates to give Sarah a dossier of what things would have looked like during the time period for each of those pirates. So it was like, here's what their weapons would have looked like. Here's what their ships would have looked like. Here's what their clothing would have looked like. Like all of it, right? And and what kind of homes they lived in. And so they just gave, they put so much, National Geographic put so much into this to make sure that we got it right. And Sarah herself is so incredibly talented and diligent that she, you know, you know, she ended up going to these pirate museums so that she could find, get her hands on artifacts and so that she could end up making sure that in the tiniest of detail, when you look at the tiniest of details here, she's just nailed it. And she, she ended up walking through how she did it. She paint, you know, she, she draws it and then paints it in large scale and then shrinks it way, way down. And so just the level of detail to make sure that we were um, historically accurate and culturally accurate. You know, there were a number of things that we went back and forth on. You know, one of the things for, for Ching Shi and one of the images, and they were super receptive to, to my input also. There was a one of the images of Ching Shi, I ended up saying, you know, it really looks like she's double-lidded there. Like her eyelids are double-lidded. And that doesn't, I don't think that's representative of the time, but could somebody check into that? And they came back and said, absolutely right. We, we should switch that. And they did. And, and, you know, things like Grace O'Malley's clan's colors. I saw the, the images that Sarah had come through with, and she didn't know that, of course, no reason for her to have. It was, you know, just kind of a detail. And I remembered having come across it 
in my research. So I just wrote right back to the editor and said, hey, you know, the, the clan color for this, and you, you might actually want to use a bore for that because it seems like that. And they were like, great, we'll switch it right away. You know, so just full commitment all the way around to make sure that we got it right. And Sarah's details were so interesting. You know, she gave an example in in one of the classes that we visited in New York where she was showing the hilt of a sword, which is the part that keeps your hand from sliding onto the onto the blade, and that she had thought that it was going to be like Vikings hilts, and that it turned out that they were actually these really tiny little hilts. So she had to do, go back and change all of the swords that you could see in the pictures that were just these tiny little hilts. And, you know, the kids thought that was really interesting to hear about what the swords looked like and I mean, I'm a 30-something-year-old woman, and I think it's fascinating. So Yeah, and it was just, it was great, you know, because I went through it with such minute detail. And then to hear about Sarah's side of it and, and to see all of the information that National Geographic had provided to her, it was just really, really cool to see the whole thing. From I mean, it's incredible. And just, I really commend you guys on all the, the collaboration and the passion that came behind this. Now, I'd love to talk to you because I know you're on the board of Society for Children's Book Writers and Illustrators. And... And we have a lot of younger listeners on our podcast who are making the big decisions in their life about whether they want to become a writer and what they want to do next. And I just want to give you an opportunity and give them an opportunity to hear your advice because your job seems so fascinating and you seem so passionate about it. And I think that's all anyone ever wants in life is to do what they love. And so can you give any advice to any of them about, you know, your journey to becoming a writer and what they can do to follow in your footsteps? Absolutely. And I I should say I'm on the board of the local chapter of that group, SCBWI, and they are the absolute best. So if you are interested in becoming a children's writer or illustrator, I would say run, don't walk to join that group. It is absolutely the easiest way to find your people, to find a community of writers and illustrators in your region. So, you know, I would say there's a number of things. One is so many people come up to me, especially since I published this book and say, I have an idea for a picture book. And I always say, great, write it. <laughs> you, know, you got, I mean, you just, you have to write. Like everybody has an idea. And I did too, before I started writing, before I started writing seriously, I had lots of ideas, but you can't become a writer unless you write. And so that, that's the, the really unfortunate part of it is it's, it's a slog in some ways, you know, and, and it, you're absolutely right. This is my passion and I love it dearly. And I can't imagine not doing this but it's a slog. You know, you write a lot of junk and that's okay. That's part of the process, but you you have to do it and you have to revise it. You can't just write something and think that this is it. I'm good. I wrote my masterpiece. You didn't. Nobody does. It's just not how it works. You know, I would just strongly, strongly advise finding a community, finding a critique group, finding people who can read your work and give you honest feedback. And it's, it's no fun. I mean, you know, it's no fun to take to take the to take the criticism. But you also get these nuggets of, oh, yeah, they're right. And you hear, you know, two days after you get the feedback, you can sit back and not be quite as defensive. And you can hear through that to think, yeah, they're right. This doesn't work. Right. It's so important. It is. It absolutely is. And it makes your work better. And yeah, joining a group like SCBWI, finding a critique group, revising, those are the key things. And then once you've done it, especially for women, I found so often that women 
work on a single manuscript for years and years and years. And I'm always like, submit it. It's ready. You can't, there's nothing more you can do to it. It's ready to, I'm not saying it'll be published. It may or may not get published, right? It's a crapshoot, but, but you gotta put it out there or else a hundred percent, it's not going to get published. And I know that some people just want to write for the fun of it. And that's absolutely fine, right? If you don't want to try to get published, that's absolutely fine. For some people, writing is cathartic. And sometimes, you know, even for me, you talked about me writing for adults. I, I do. I write satire and humor for adults sometimes. And for me, that's a stress reliever. I don't, I never make any money off of it. I don't expect to. Sometimes I don't even submit my work. It's just kind of a pressure release for me of what's going on in the world and helping me find some humor in it just to be able to cope with, with, you know, the stresses of the world. And for some people, any kind of writing is like that. And that's great. And, but if you'd like to be published, you have to submit. And I think, of course, I'm stereotyping here, but I, my experience has been that men are much quicker to feel like, yep, I'm done and I'm going to submit it. And they go for it. And a lot of women are really hesitant to do that. And, and yep, there's, probably going to be rejection ahead. That's true. That's just the case with this business. It's a it's a rejection laden business. But literally nothing's going to happen if you don't submit. It's so true. So just go for it, guys. You're 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 listening. If you're listening to this, you're meant to hear it. Just submit your work. Go for it. And on top of that, just one more thing on top of that is, you know, if you say if you feel compelled to come up to a writer and say, I have a great idea for a story, you probably do. Right. Write it down. Like, go for it. Yeah. See it. See whether or not once you put pen to paper, you know, once you sit down at your computer, see whether or not it's got what it takes to be a story. Once you write it, is it a story that you would read? Now show it to five people. And if it's see if it's a story that they would like to read, just go for it. And those steps seem so doable, too. So thank you that, you know, sometimes taking the first step is the hardest step. So, you know, I wonder when you get an idea of for something, how do you know whether it's for a children's book or it's no, 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 this is actually adult satire? Do you feel like the material itself decides for you or do you start writing it as one and then decide, oh, no, I, now I'm going to switch to the other? You know, I'm a horrible person for you to ask about this because <laughs> I get it wrong all the time. But that's okay. You know, that's part of the process. We all get it wrong. <laughs> I do. I do. I mean, I thought that Ching Shi was going to be a picture book, an older picture book, and that it would be a single poem about Ching Shi's life. And it would be this beautiful 32 page picture book. And, you know, my editor at National Geographic was smarter than I am. And she was able to see that this should actually be for middle grade and it should be 64 pages instead. And, you know, all of that. And, and so it's really nice to, in some ways, for me to not have to know that. I mean, my, my agent says to me all the time, you have a middle grade voice. You know, I, I have kind of a snarky, I like to write snarky. I read a lot of snarky picture books and she's like, right, write it longer as a middle grade book. And I continue to write picture books and that kind of snarky voice that, you know, they don't, they haven't been published. And so there's, I, I'm really not a good one to ask because I, I think I get it wrong a lot. And, you know, I, I guess that's okay. Of course, it's okay because that's the thing. You get it wrong, and then suddenly something clicks, and you've just got it right. And when you get it right, you really get it right. Yes, you know, and, that, and right now, all that to say, I do think there are rules that you follow. You know, if you want to write kids' books, you should look up 
how many words in a kid's book. And that's changed a lot. Like the kid's books of my generation were long. You know, it wasn't unusual for them to have 1,500 words in them. And and now you're lucky if you can get a picture book published that has more than 500 words in it. And so, you know, it's worth huge difference. And and books of today are really different than, from the books of my... You, you're not allowed to submit a book, go, this is just like, you know... Sylvester and the Magic Pebble, like whatever it is that from your childhood, because it doesn't matter. Those books wouldn't make it today in the same way. And so that it's really important, I think, if you're just getting started to kind of do the research to figure out where at least you should be aiming. Like, for instance, if you're going to write middle grade, are you writing upper or lower middle grade? And that'll give you some guidance as to what your word count goal should be. And, and uh, you know, I do think that that's important. You know, there are, of course, exceptions you know, there's the Harry Potters of the world that have 10 gazillion pages in them, but most books for, for kids don't have that many words in them, especially when you're getting started, follow the rules. It's just a lot easier to follow the rules. Once you get to be a bestseller, then you can break them as much as you want. But until then, and then I think the other thing is that a lot of people don't know when they're getting started. Everybody says, well, I know, but isn't it like, how'd you find your illustrator? And you don't in traditional publishing, unless you're going to self-publish, which is a whole nother ball game of, of getting it printed by yourself and figuring out how to market it and all of that on your own. If you're looking to be traditionally published by a publisher, they find the illustrator. You submit your work in just words only. And it once they buy it, they end up finding an illustrator that they think is the right fit. And so to me, I say that just because I think it kind of takes the pressure off of writers' backs. I think a lot of times for newbies that come to our meetings, they're like, you know, it's like this whole daunting, long path. And it is daunting for sure, but it's not as daunting as feeling like you have to solve it all the way through. Basically, once you sell the manuscript, you sit back until they give you feedback and then you rewrite it. And then it's, you know, then it's in their hands and whatever happens to it happens to it. See, guys, it's so much more doable than you thought. There you go. Lee, thank you. For... I cannot draw to save my life. <laughs> Me either. I'm with you. OK, but I have to ask you one last question before we go. So you you've written about these incredible women and I did see other people have asked you this question, but I can't not ask it. So if you could go on one of these adventures with one of these women and you had to choose one, who would you choose and why? Oh, definitely it's Shang-Chi. First of all, I wouldn't I wouldn't be sold as property. So that's one, right. that's a huge selling okay. point. <laughs> but second of all, just to be able to see a woman who defied all societal expectations and became such an incredible ruler and changed the rule book of what piracy meant and and what code of laws pirates had to live by and to have earned the respect of so many people, predominantly men, in an age at which women did not have that kind of power. I, I just, you know, I would just love to be a fly on the wall for, for that, for Ching Shi's adventures. Well, thank you for writing about this and being a pioneer in, in, within 
Like I just it makes so means so much to me as a mom that books like out there exist like this for my daughter. And because she is now going to be raised reading books like this, hopefully she'll continue to tell that story and uh, your kids as well. And hopefully walking the plank will look differently <laughs> when we start to play them in the pool with them, because I'm just really grateful. So thank you. And we always a- ask this to a lot of our guests. But if you could go back in time and talk to yourself as a young, impressionable woman. What advice would you give to little Lee? Oh, I, you know, I was always pretty adventurous, but even more so I would say, go for it. There were things that, you know, I just wish that I had attempted, that I had thought bigger, that I had known that I could have gone for in in a way that I, I think a lot of kids don't, you know, especially during kind of their tween years and teen years, there's, you care so much about what other people think in those in those years and you're awkward and all of that. And then you realize as an adult, oh, everybody was, right? Everybody, <laughs> everybody was, right? And so I, you know, I just wished that. I wish I could go back and say, go for it and not have those years of of self-doubt and self-criticism and that type of thing. I, I wish I had the confidence of a, a 40-year-old at age 12. Yeah. That's what I wish. (laughs) I am with you. I am with you. Well, you guys, make sure to get Pirate Queen's Dauntless Woman Who Dared to Rule the High Seas. We look forward to all of your work, Lee, and please continue writing. Where can our listeners find you on social media? Uh, I'm at leelewisbooks.com. And Pirate Queen's is available in bookstores everywhere. Go, walk, don't run, or run, don't walk. Sorry, that's what I meant to say. Thank you so much, Lee. Thank you, Kayla. This has been a blast. I really appreciate it. It definitely makes me rethink all the history that I've learned in school, and it makes me want to do some research of my own. I'm so excited for this book to arrive. I'm really honored and passionate about what Lee has done. And I think that if she starts to do this, it can continue to spiral and we could have these incredible books for all of us, all of us women and men to grow up and maybe change our minds about our history and the bravery that women showed back then that just hasn't been reported. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Directionally Challenged about pirates. We've been really excited to have Lee on. We have another great episode coming for you next week. Until then, take care. Directionally Challenged is a production of Pineapple Productions. Produced by Melissa D. Monts. Edited by Diane King. Post-production sound by Chris Henry. Music by Joe King. And advertising partnership with Acast. Acast.